This is David Tarkington, pastor of the First Baptist Church of Orange Park, Florida. Thank you for downloading this sermon. For any other information or questions you may have, please go to firstfam.org or give us a call at 904-264-2351. Let's give you get a copy of God's Word before you and look to the book of Isaiah, that Old Testament book. We're going to be in chapter 53 for the beginning part of this message. And as you're finding that and our choir and members are coming down, To join you, I'll ask you to go ahead and stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to read Isaiah 53 and verses 10 and 11. You can follow along on the screen there or on the copy of the Bible that you either brought with you or had there in the pew before you. Verse 10, it says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand out of the anguish of his soul He shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge, shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. May God bless the reading of his word. You can be seated. I don't know how many of you, we'll take a little straw poll here. How many of you are the kind of people that when you're watching a mystery, a movie, a mystery that you, maybe even reading the book, your entire time of watching that movie or show is to try to figure out who done it before they tell you who done it? Anybody? Okay, good, good, good. It's not just me. Uh, See, Tracy, it's not just me. So, yeah. So my wife, she just said, she's mouthing, you run movies for me. Yeah, I know. I do that. I'm like, oh, that's the guy that did it. And then all of a sudden, yeah, see, I told you it was that guy. And, uh, you know, I knew that. And then if I'm wrong, I'm like, well, it should have been that guy. So, you know, you kind of look at it that way. So whether you're watching, you know, the movies, the mysteries, whether it's like Death on the Nile or Murder on the Orient Express or Knives Out or something like that, it's always that, that who did it before they tell you who did it, Right. And now in the days of uh, YouTube channels and blogs and postings and things like that, there are a lot of people that if you... If you're waiting to see a film and you, you didn't catch it in the theater, so you wait for it to come onto streaming or wherever you may watch it or even uh, buy a DVD, go figure. You might do that. Um, you don't want your friends to tell you who done it before you, re- they, you know who done it. You want to watch it. You want to have fresh eyes. So if you're reading these articles or these, watching these little clips, they often will say spoiler alert on it. And if you read something that says spoiler alert, or if you're watching a YouTube channel that says spoiler alert as it's talking about some film that's out, the intention is to say, hey, here's what we're going to do if you keep going on. We're going to ruin this show for you. We're going to tell you who did it before you get to watch it. We're going to tell you that all these things that already took place uh, that we've seen, that we've, we've uh, researched and we have answers for, and if you don't want to know, don't keep reading or don't keep viewing. You know, sometimes those things, you know, I don't know if you've ever done that. You ever, uh, you ever talk to somebody and you accidentally reveal something that they were trying to wait to see? Like, for instance, has your, have, you ever, have, have you ever been on a phone call or has your, your spouse ever been on a phone call with her father? And, um, and it's on speakerphone and it's during the football season and he was talking about, you know, he likes Patrick Mahomes and I don't know if you've ever experienced this where you're talking about the Kansas City Chiefs game and... And then you say something like, oh yeah, they lost. And then you hear your father-in-law say on the phone, oh thanks, I recorded that, I was going to watch it later. Now I don't have to watch it until I know who won. Not that that would ever happen, I'm just a for instance, that could happen. Story. Some people may have done something like that, you know. But sometimes the stories are so old, they've been out so long that, you know, you should have seen it by now. So hey, spoiler alert. Darth Vader is Luke's father, just in case you didn't know. And for those that are like, oh my goodness, I can't believe you ruined it for me. Uh, it, the, it, it's been out for a few decades. You had time to watch it. So nonetheless, 
you talk about these spoiler alerts. Those warnings are intended to keep you from moving ahead. But as you're looking at today, as you're looking at what we're reading about, what we've just read, what we've sung about, what we declared on Friday, we come together to celebrate the pinnacle moment of Christendom. The moment that uh, should, not have, should not be a spoiler to anybody in the room or online right now. For 2,000 years, we have had people much like us gathering in places either like this or smaller or in homes all throughout the world talking about that one pivotal moment that is being celebrated today. And in our case, as we discovered, every Lord's Day is celebrated the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who literally really did die three days prior, was put in a grave, and then rose again on the third day. It shouldn't be a spoiler. It should be known. And yet we, we think things or we presume things, and in our, I guess if you want to use our missiology sometimes, we just presume everybody has already heard this story, and so sometimes that keeps us from telling others about the story. But if I were to tell you there are actually people on the planet that are, not, that are, that are unaware of this Jesus coming back to life story, it might shock you initially, but then you might say, well, yeah, yeah I get that. Perhaps there are places in the Far East, uh, uh, or places that were, uh, uh, you know, under the, uh, the, the Soviet regime when that existed years ago and communism, maybe they never heard, maybe still some of that holdover, or maybe where other religions are worshipped in different areas around the world, or maybe in the, some places in Africa. We had our missionaries here from Uganda last week. So yeah, likely there are probably places like that where the story of Jesus and the, the gospel has is, is not yet been heard, and that is true. But there are also places where you would presume that everybody already knows the story and you find out it's not. I have a good friend who is a missionary in Ireland. I met him a number of years ago through our partnership and missions there in, in the UK. And, uh, and he happened to be in Ireland. He's still in Ireland, he and his wife. And uh, they serve with our uh, international mission board. And at the time, they lived in a little village on the western side of Ireland, and they were there doing mission work. Of course, you, you really aren't, you can't go there as missionaries, so they, they have legitimate other jobs they do, but it, they also are intent on presenting the gospel to those that have never heard the truth of Christ. And so in the way they do that, and we've talked about this many times in the past, they do it through storying the scripture. So they would gather with uh, their neighbors, they would meet at a coffee shop, have people come over to their house for dinner, have them bring their kids, and not a large group, maybe two or three people, and they would begin storying the scripture. When I say storying the scripture, what I mean is this, is they actually begin a story by saying, here is a story that took place in the Bible, because how you begin a story matters. That's why you don't, uh, you don't begin a Bible story with once upon a time. By saying that very phrase, you're just telling people it's not true. So you say, here's a story that happened in the the Bible. And they start telling the story. And it's a gospel account just working their way through the New Testament, through the life of Christ, actually. And it, you know, five, ten minute story, and sometimes they'll tell it once or twice, and then they'll, and, and all, many of you who used to be in our college ministry Bible study at our home, this is what we did every Sunday night. We'd have about 30 to 50 students in our home doing these stories. So it is something that is memorable. It is something that is easy to repeat and replicate. And so it works. That's why we do that. And sometimes those families would have young children, so those children would act out the stories. And if you're acting it out, you remember it even well. It's just an amazing way of telling the gospel story. But my friend would say this. He said over months of meeting in their home and going through these accounts and having dinner together and actually, go figure, building relationships and friendships with those they are presenting the gospel with, let me just go ahead and pause and say that should never be forgotten because people are not projects. And if people view themselves as projects that you just got to get another sale on your Jesus sales pitch, you're really not presenting the gospel with true agape love. So loving people matters. 
So in their love of these people and their desire to teach them the truth and the willingness of these people to engage in these conversations, they would story through the scriptures. But he said this to me. He said, we got to the point where we're talking about the trial of Jesus before the crucifixion. Now, I know that this is Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, but, but this all happened in the prior week, right? And so they're going through that and they're storying that. And after months of meeting together, he said their friend, their neighbor, just kind of slammed the table and said, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. This Jesus guy, are you kidding me? One, he didn't do anything wrong. He shouldn't have been put on a cross. Why, 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 why did this even happen? But are you telling me? And it was like a moment that it just, it just, it blows my mind to think about it. He says, are you telling me that this was a true story? And that the Jesus that we're talking of now that really did all these things, that didn't deserve what was happening to him, is the same guy that's on all these crosses, on all these cathedrals in our town, that is on all the artwork? See, here's a, a gentleman with his wife and his kids who grew up in probably the most religiously uh, illustrated area in the world other than perhaps the Vatican itself with all the, 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 the churches and the cathedrals and, the, and, and you know, the, the, the influence of Catholicism and Roman Catholicism and all that. And, he, and it never occurred to him that the guy on the statue on the cross in the cathedrals that's very decorative was a real person and was the person they were speaking of. Now that's not saying that's true for everybody that was in that region, but for him it was. The presumption that we ought to know the story is offensive at some level and sinful at another. To presume people know just because, that'd be like presuming that somebody that grew up with southern fried reality in the deep south and United States and just because there were 20 churches in their town and they were dragged to every one of them by their parents is actually a Christian. That they actually know the truth of the gospel. That would be the same presumption that just because you're saturated with Jesus junk that you know him. See, that's not the truth, is it? And so when we look at this, spoiler alert, God had a plan. And the plan was that Christ would come and that Christ would live a perfect life and that Christ would die on that cross on what we call Good Friday. And that three days later, that on resurrection day, he would be alive once more. That is a true story. That is a real story. It's not some manufactured, man-made story to, to, to just kind of propagate some system. And it seems that there truly is more to this day than all the pastel clothing we can find and the egg hunts and the baskets. And, and let me just say, there's actually something more important today than those incredible Reese's peanut butter eggs that are available right now. And I like the white chocolate ones in case you're taking notes. But nonetheless... The surprise is this, God did not intend for his plan of redemption for humanity to be a secret. In fact, he had prepared his people for centuries prior to the cross for the day that was to come. And if you look at some Old Testament passages, and we're going to passages that you may not have gone to normally on an Easter Sunday morning, Resurrection Sunday gathering, but we're going to look at these passages because I believe the Christ is revealed in every Old Testament book. I think they look forward to the cross. And then all of a sudden, the years started going, not quit going backwards and started going forwards, and everything changed, B.C. to A.D., and in the year of the Lord that we gather even now, we worship the same God. In Psalm 1610, David writes this, 
For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, Sheol meaning the grave, or let your Holy One see corruption. David, the Old Testament king, the psalm writer, wrote this psalm. It is more than just a psalm or a song. It is actually a prayer put to music, and it's a prayer to God. And the word that's here, abandon, that's in this word in, a, in English, comes from a a transliteration of the ancient Hebrew with an ancient Hebrew preposition beforehand that refers to leaving someone behind. Leaving someone behind to abandon an individual. In other words, this is not just a psalm speaking of God's rescue from immediate danger, but it is of God's resurrection from the dead. It is David's inclination to not just speak about being abandoned in the here and now, but what about the life after this life, if you want to go that route? to be saved from the death that is everyone's destiny. So in this passage, David speaks of resurrection from the dead. So resurrection, again, is not just a New Testament idea. It was proclaimed even from the Old Testament perspective, life beyond this life. How does this relate to Jesus Christ? Because of what is known in this passage and what is known in the Davidic covenant, and you can read that in 2 Samuel chapter 7 if you choose to. And in that covenant between David and our God, The word translated into English as, quote, your holy one is uniquely used to describe the coming Messiah who would come to fulfill the call that God has upon his life, the second person of the Trinity, Son of God, God the Son, who would die on the cross and be that Messiah that was the fulfillment of all those prophecies. So when David prays to God and sings to God there and says, let your holy one see corruption, That continues with the negative, right? You will not let your Holy One see corruption. What is he saying there? He is referencing the coming Christ. That also leads to another Psalm of David, Psalm 22. Now, we often read Psalm 23. We know that one. That's about the shepherd in the valley of the shadow of death, and that one is very good and proper and right. But don't skip the 22nd Psalm. The 22nd Psalm, if you read that, is actually an Old Testament song that reads like a play-by-play of the crucifixion. Psalm 22.1 says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Now that might ring a bell for you that you might not have recognized. That's an Old Testament passage, but when Christ was on the cross, one of the seven last sayings he had was this one right here. He is hanging on a cross, bleeding and dying, and he pulls himself up and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he didn't read that then to win a trophy for the Bible drill to quote Old Testament passages, but he connected an Old Testament passage to a current reality that reveals to us that when the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit, God, the third person, gave the word to David to write, God was preparing his people for what was to come many, many years later. Spoiler alert, there are no surprises. He lets you read the end of the book first. Christ quoted that, and then, of course, we have Isaiah 53, 10, and 11, which I read, and the entirety of the Isaiah 53 chapter is clearly referencing the Christ. And we understand that now because we have Holy Spirit-gifted 2020 hindsight as we read that. The Messiah spoken of in David's covenant with God, it suffers, and he dies, Psalm 22. He is raised again in Psalm 16, verse 10. The prophet knew these psalms, the Old Testament prophet did, and he knew the prophetic words describing the coming Messiah, and Isaiah states it this way. He says, he shall see his offspring. That can be a bit confusing because you'll wait. I didn't know Jesus had any kids, and I'm talking to all of you who don't believe Dan Brown and the Da Vinci Code. 
because he didn't have any kids. But he had many disciples who would follow him, and those are the offsprings referenced there. That he would live so he could see those who would come to become his disciples, who would live for him, who would sacrifice much to live for him. Not just those that were named in the New Testament following the book of Acts and beyond, but those who are named here in this church and many other churches as disciples of Jesus Christ, as that offspring. Jesus, the coming Messiah, the suffering servant of God the Father, the sacrifice for humanity, the bridge, the self-proclaimed and declared and truthful way, truth, and life was to die, but he would not remain dead. We sing that old song at times, up from the grave he arose. You remember that one? It has a nice drum beat, so it kind of gets you going. It's a declarative statement of the reality that Christ did not remain in the grave, but that he truly was there in Sheol. And from Sheol the grave he marched free. And these passages in the Old Testament lay the groundwork for our understanding of this truth. These words in the Davidic covenant from 2 Samuel and the Psalms, along with Isaiah's prophetic statements, let me just tell you, they spoil the story. They tell you how it's going to end before it ever begins, at least that portion. Now, others were used by God to prepare the unveiling of Christ throughout the Old Testament. Jonah gets swallowed by a giant fish. You probably have seen that story depicted in children's books. You probably read it, and whether you call it a whale or a big fish, it's a guy inside a fish. I mean, I get that. It's an interesting story, but how long was he inside the fish? Three days. That's not coincidental. As Jonah was in the fish for three days, so would the Christ be in the grave for three days. It's a preparation for the story that would come. Hosea speaks of the third day when he, where he would raise up. The word revive is used throughout the Old Testament and Messianic prophecies at many times. And the defeat of the grave is stated over and over again. Christ arose on the third day, and I know people get bent out of shape going, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, is that really three days or is that two days? Is that a day and a half? And so there's all these debates. Well, maybe Christ was crucified on Thursday. Maybe it wasn't Friday, and it really doesn't matter, but we do know this is the reality. He was raised again on the first day of the week or that seventh day of the week, that Sunday, that Lord's Day. And it was three days later. You ever wonder why it was three days on what happened in that third day? Here, here's something interesting. Sometimes when you're reading the Old Testament and the creation narrative, you, there's this tendency to kind of fly through the first chapter of Genesis because of the, on the first day did this, second day did this, third day, and you're kind of just reading that. And then there's that, you know, and that just generates a lot of debate. Well, is it really a 24-hour period or was it like a million years was one day? And, and you know, I, I'm, I'm a young earth guy because I kind of live with that 24-hour thing. And people go, well, how can the earth look that old if it was like just in one day? I don't know. How did Adam just begin as already an adult? I don't know, I guess I'm just simple enough to think that if God could gift Adam with the generous gift of skipping puberty um, and just say, okay, you're going to start like you've already lived for 28 years, then he probably is God enough to say, and I'm going to plant an earth here that's going to look like it's been here a while. So even earth didn't have its puberty, I guess. I don't know. But, you know, we can get into those debates and we can fight all that and then we'll get to heaven and God said, you wasted a ton of time, didn't you? No, yeah, exactly right. But I was right. Yeah, you were right on things that don't matter, meaning it don't matter. So, nonetheless, what does matter is that God created everything. He is creator. You eliminate the creator God, you give yourself permission to live how you want to. That's another sermon for another day. But nonetheless, he created. And the scripture is very clear that it happened in a seven-day or six-day period. 
using that word day. But there was something that took place very interestingly, I think, in Genesis 1, verses 11 through 13. Let me read this to you. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind, on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was an evening and there was morning the third day. Now, can I, let me just go ahead and say that I, I've, I've had children's books, I've read this, I've read the creation story, can I, and, and, and maybe I'm a bad guy for doing this, but the third day just seems really boring, so I kind of skip to when like dinosaurs and everybody else shows up, right? Third day is about a bunch of plants. Now, some of you just love your plants and you're offended I even said that right now, and I used this term at the eight o'clock service and I said, I am not a plantologist. And then all these people are like, well, it's a, it's a, it's a botanist, it's a herb, herb, whatever. And I said, listen, just Google plantologist. And if you Google plantologist, it will tell you on the Urban Dictionary that plantologist is a person that thinks the word is plantology and keeps using it regardless what other people tell him. <laughs> you think I'm making that up? You're Googling that right now. I'm telling you it's right there. So that's where I am. I'm planta- so I'm no plantologist. I don't know about that. But I do know this, that there is something that was significant about the third day and the vegetation growing. And I, and I also had this. One of our brothers came to me afterwards and said, hey, if you don't have plants on the third day, you ain't got no oxygen on the fourth day. I said, oh, that's good too. I'll write that down. Right now. Use that at 1045. I just used it and gave him credit. Now listen. On the third day, the plants, the vegetation is given. It was on that day that there was something from the ground came up and showed life. The plants yielded fruit on the third day because we get very clear descriptors throughout the scripture that if there is a fruit-bearing tree that is growing that does not uh, have fruit, that tree is a worthless tree and needs to be just gone. That's an illustration for another day as well. But the trees were fruit-bearing and they they bore fruit on that day, so even that was an immediate thing, right? But before the third day, we had light and there was water and there was dirt, and yet on on the third day, life sprung forth. Now, you know I'm not a plantologist, but you know how plants grow, right? They grow from seeds. I know bulbs. Very simply, they grow from seeds. And, and, and seeds in and of themselves are not very uh, exciting. You can go to Lowe's or Home Depot or Ace, and you can go to the garden center and get you a little bag of seeds. But unless your intent is to, like, sprinkle those on your hamburger bun, by themselves they're useless. You need to put them in the dirt, You need to water them, you need to fertilize them, you need to do something there and give it time because if that seed does what that seed is supposed to do, that seed will do something very interesting. It will die. The seed has to die. And when the seed dies, then life can come forth. So is it random that on the third day the plants and the seeds are all described here in this way? I I don't think so. Because I think everything points to this ultimate third day. Jesus even said in John 12, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears fruit. Because then it grows. And it can bear fruit and much more can take place. See, Jesus, limited by his own design to be, as God the Father designed to be wrapped in human flesh, was, you know this, right? Jesus was in one place at one time for those 33 years. When he was walking on the water on the Sea of Galilee, he wasn't hanging out uh, in the city of Jerusalem at the same time. 
by his own choice, by his own design, limited by his own laws that he created, he allowed himself to be limited to be in one place at one time at one moment. But then he dies, really dies. And on that third day, he raises again, and then he goes and ascends to heaven, as we read in the first chapter of the book of Acts. And the third person of the Trinity is gifted to the church. And that's how we can say God is here and also with our brothers across the river and across the ocean and on the other side of the planet. For our God is sovereign and the spirit of God resides within. People, I may not be able to convince you that Jesus really literally rose from the dead, but by faith I do believe it occurred and by faith I believe God has been spoiling the story for centuries prior. Why? Because God's plan was for the redemption of the lost, salvation for people far from him, and cure for the sick. And as Jesus himself stated, this is a great passage, I love this passage, Jesus goes back to his hometown in Nazareth, and he goes into the synagogue, and they say, oh, little Jesus is back home. That's what people do when people come home, right? And they say, why don't you read the scripture for us and give us a word? And so he's apparently the designated prayer, so he is given that role. And in Luke chapter 4, verse 18, it says, He opens up the scroll and he reads this passage. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty or freedom to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to set at liberty or freedom those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolled up the scroll, set it down and said, and now it's fulfilled in your presence. They didn't like that when he said that, but here's Jesus declaring why he came. There's no mystery to it. I wonder why Jesus came. He told us. That's his inaugural address, Luke chapter 4. And where did that come from? That came from the book of Isaiah as he went back and he quoted it. Because God's plan from the beginning of time was not to keep it a secret nor to necessarily surprise us, but to reveal it along the way. And those who have ears to hear and eyes to see would get it and understand it. This is God's plan. Now back to Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6, he says this, the prophet does under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now I know you're going, you're talking a lot more about the cross and it's about the resurrection. We're getting there. I just want to make sure you understand how this all comes together. Our brother spoke about it last Friday on Good Friday. I mean, great messages, great sermons from these guys. I mean, it was just, I was just in awe of what God was doing. Now, I'm also, not only am I not a plantologist, I'm not an art connoisseur, but I do know a little bit. And I want to, I we're going to have to bring the lights down a bit so we can see this. I have a, 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 an image on the screen. Rembrandt, the great artistic master of history, painted this painting. And you can, you can probably, you can see it. There it is. It's very dark. Um, It's Jesus on the cross at his crucifixion and the people raising it up. The name of the painting is called Raising of the Cross. Very creative. Um, Painted sometime around 1630, 1632, somewhere around that. And you got the people surrounding. It's kind of hard to see, but there are people all over the place. There's a guy behind him doing this and that and the other. And there's all kinds of things going on. But what's interesting is, is what's in the middle of that painting. Now, ideally, you're, you know, your eyes are supposed to be drawn to the Christ on the cross. I get that. And that's odd enough because even in that painting, uh, it, it's, it's the traditional, very European-looking Jesus. So Jesus didn't look like that. He wasn't that white. Um, 
And he probably wasn't wearing that, by the way. So there's a lot of things there that artistic license goes with. But uh, despite the fact that it's European Jesus, there's something else very weird in that painting. And the weird thing in the painting is some dude in the middle wearing a beret. Where'd he come from? You see, the guy in the middle of the painting wearing the beret that looks so out of place is Rembrandt. Rembrandt, the artist. He painted himself into the own, to his own painting. He painted himself, he's done that numerous times, but here, and there's a, there's a lot of speculation as to why, and there's a lot of art majors and smarter people than I that have researched this, and this is why he did it, this, that, and the other, but I'll just give you a very, maybe overly simple reason why I think he did that. You know he's not physically there, right? He didn't live there. It, it, this wasn't an actual photograph. It's an artist's depiction of Christ being raised up on that cross. And I believe the image that he puts himself at that very moment in the, with the light shining upon himself in that painting, because it's deeply personal at this point. See, Rembrandt was not physically there, just like you and I were not physically there, but as Pastor Donald Lewis said, on Friday night, he referenced that old, as he said, that old Negro spiritual that said, were you there when they crucified my Lord? You maybe know that song. It's a conversation song. It's a talkback song. And the answer is very simple. Yes, you were. And yes, I was. Maybe not physically because uh, the timeline doesn't work for me to be physically there. But because of what Christ was placed on that cross, owning on himself the sins of all humanity, by virtue of what was put on him, because the wages of sin is death, and he sacrificed the only one who didn't deserve to die, the only sinless person on the planet, the only one that didn't deserve all that was going on, willingly put all the sins of humanity, past, present, and future, upon himself so that the penalty would be finally paid. So, yeah, I was there just like the artist was there. It says Jesus carried our sorrows. He is called a man of sorrows. But it's not his sorrows, it's our sorrows that he carried. The theological term is imputation, meaning that payment for guilty sins had to be paid, but in this case, the payment for the guilty was paid by one who did not deserve it, one who was innocent. He paid our bill on that cross and cleared our account. He did that for me, he did that for you, he did that for all. And now we have the great opportunity to have a clean, clean slate and to start over because we did not deserve this great payment. But if we would receive it, we can be born again. I was talking with some new members that were in our membership class this morning at nine o'clock. We went through the whole plan of salvation, went to that verse in Romans, says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And, and, and it, you, know, you start with the other verse, Romans 3.23, it says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It doesn't take a real genius for most of us to figure out we've sinned. Once we understand sin as anything you think, say, or do outside the will of God, you know, most everybody goes, well, I never killed anybody. That's really good. Keep that up. But nonetheless, you probably have thought some things that are not exactly God-honoring. Well, yeah, because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's nobody that's that good, nobody that innocent, nobody's grandma was that nice of a person, nobody's that good. We all need a savior because the wages of sin is death and the wages of sin has always been death. 
And so somebody had to die. And it's a terrible statement when you read that. The wages of sin is death, and I am a sinner, therefore I deserve death. Death separated by eternity for eternity because of my sin. Never to be in heaven, never to be with my Lord, never to be with my Savior, never to be connected with anybody that's ever known the Lord before. Again, because my sins have a payment due, and the wages of sin is death. But then there's that little comma in the English, and it says, but there's a gift. You owe a death, but there's a gift, and the gift is life. And the great thing about gifts, and we had that little conversation this morning, I said, what's the difference in a gift and a wage? And they said, well, the wage is what I deserve because I worked for it. But a gift is what I don't deserve, but just somebody wanted to love, give, show me their love and their kindness by giving me that. I said, then how foolish is it to know the truth of the matter is that God has given us a gift of life but to leave it wrapped up and stuck in the corner even after the Christmas tree's been put up. Never to open it, never to receive it. And to continue falsely trying to live our lives as I can do better and I'll be, you know, I need some inner peace and I need some other philosophy to go to and just work really hard. Just so you know, Avis Renicar's philosophy of how they do business is not good theology. We try harder. You can never try hard enough. But thanks be to God, he gave us a way. And, a, and this Sunday, on this resurrection day, it is the key for as it is three days later after this cross that Jesus was revived, resurrected, alive again, perfect and prepared for the next portion of the story, the Messiah that had come to die had come back to life. Spoiler alert, God told us this would happen. And I read that, don't you, don't you think about that now when you look, if you read the scripture and you see the disciples all huddled up, afraid they're all gonna get killed just like Jesus did and they're kind of in hiding and all of a sudden, three days later, Jesus kind of goes, and goes right through the wall and is in the room with them. It did make that noise, my Bible says so, so he did that. And as they're sitting in the room after Jesus phased through the door, they're all looking at him and, and now we have this incredible 2020 Holy Spirit hindsight and we read it and we go, well, why didn't they know? He told them over and over again, I'm gonna tear the temple down, build it back in three days. You know, I mean, it's like Jonah and the whale and all these things, he told them. But just because you hear something doesn't mean you know something. And he spoiled the story over and over and over again, but they just weren't listening. And you and I, we all know people that are just like that. You can tell them till you're red in the face, God loves you. He wants to know you. He wants to save you. He wants to change you. He wants to clean you up. He wants to give you a purpose in life. In fact, Jesus even came and said, I have come to give you life full and abundant. Isn't that right? Amen. Full and abundant life. But how many people do you know that by their own estimation, if you were to interview them, would say, I have life, but it's not full. It's like half full or maybe a quarter of a tank. And it's not abundant. It's kind of struggling right now. That's not God's desire. Now, there's that whole lie of the prosperity gospel where people think full and abundant life means you get a new car, a new house, a million dollars, this, and that's just a bunch of bogus hooey. Go watch some documentary on bad churches. You'll figure that out. The truth of the matter is God has come to give you life, full, abundant, complete, and he is the completer. You know, I know as Christians, we do this. We, uh, Easter's wonderful. I love this part of the year. And we'll get to Friday and we'll say, Friday's tough. And then we'll quote the old pastor who says, but Sunday's coming. We'll amen that. And Sunday's coming, Sunday's here, Sunday's here. But we also know the fact of the matter is that many, even us as Christians, we know this and we amen it. We have Sunday's here, woo, resurrection Sunday. But we also have this little voice in the back of our head that says, yeah, Sunday's coming. But you also know Monday's coming too, right? 
Because Monday is tomorrow and Monday, Monday, Monday's coming. And when you get back to Monday, then you go back into the world. You go back to work and you go back into the blood. And you just hold on for another year because Sunday's coming. See, the God that we worship, the Christ that has given us this gift, it says you can have life that is not defined by your circumstances or by how other people treat you, but is defined by him and his word. You can have life, and if you would but repent of your sin, acknowledge the depth of the deserved separation you have with God, and surrender your life to Jesus Christ as your Lord, you too can be born again, anew, just as Scripture says. To be made over new, to be redone, to be cleansed from the inside out, to be a not the same person you used to be. Spoiler alert, this was the plan from all along. This was the way, this is the way. And this is your opportunity to say yes. I've had a number of conversations this past week, and let me end it with this. This is just how you think about God, all right? There are a lot of Christian churches out there, a lot of denominations, every church on every corner. You know, there are a lot of ways you can categorize us. Some Christians live with a big God theology. Big God. God is creator. He is sovereign. He is, by speaking things into existence, he is so big. He's so immense. He's huge. It's all about him. He's the author. He's the main star. It's God. It's big God. Everything's about God. And then there are some churches that are a little more big man theology. And the, the big man or the big humanity theology tends to, tends to lean more into, you know, people who say, well, I found God. Or, um, or I decided to get saved, or I prayed a prayer. And, and every time they talk to you about their relationship with God, it's about what they did with him. You ever notice that? By the way, Baptists live in both worlds. Can I just say, we're doing our very best here at First Baptist Church of Orange Park to eliminate the big man theology, to elevate the big God theology, because that's what the scripture is all about. It's about him. It's not about me. And I'm so thankful that God has saved me and I'm thankful that he has saved many of you and wants to save you and he is drawing you to himself. But even in that drawing, it's about God. Some of you have heard this over and over and over again, some for the first time today, that the God is that big, that God is that immense, that sovereign, that huge, actually does love you. And want you to know it. The son dies on the cross primarily for the glory of the father. Because our theology is big God theology. But by dying for the glory of the father, we get the residuals, which means it's good for us. Because his payment paid for our sins. And now we can know our father just the same way. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, if you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, then I pray today you surrender your life to him. That if you need to break out of a, of a history of uh, churchianity to find a true Christianity, maybe today's a day that big God is received in your life. Today could be that day. It is a gift. It's just, you know, gifts are only useful if you open them. So may you open that today. And may we behold the promise of God fulfilled. 
Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and all that you have spoken throughout the ancient words that are in Old Testament to New Testament, to everything that is preached and proclaimed that comes from that even now. Thank you, Father. You are big. You are immense. You are beyond our comprehension. And yet, even in your immensity and in that overwhelming reality of who you are, you created us in your image. And even after sin infected us and has depraved us and caused us to be separated from you, you made a way. Plan A, from the beginning of time, before the beginning of time, that Christ would come, live that perfect life, die for real on a cross and be resurrected three days later as death has been defeated, to allow us to sing songs like victory in Jesus and actually mean it. For there is victory over death. There is victory over sin. There is victory over our perspective of how things ought to be in you. Thank you for making promises and keeping them. Thank you for the cross. And thank you for an empty tomb. Thank you.